This is Family Office Intel at Denton's, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actionable ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the Modern Family Office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. The following is a conversation with Karen Yanis. Karen is a philanthropy expert with diverse experience in the space. She's built and run foundations for two large family offices, Oprah Winfrey and the Crown Family in Chicago. Today, she consults with high net worth families and businesses to help develop their uh, philanthropic practices in line with their values. Her focus is on governance, cross-generation engagement, strategic planning, and evaluation. She's also the chair of the board of directors at the Poetry Foundation. Karen has a degree in broadcast journalism from Emerson College. Today, our discussion will cover many areas, including the philanthropic landscape during the pandemic and what we may be in store in a post-pandemic world. We'll also talk about the global philanthropic space and how it varies across different countries and why, how families can get started on their philanthropic journey and best practices to employ employ, uh, along the way. We'll also talk about the role of a family office to support family uh, philanthropy and then tips on getting the next gen involved in philanthropic efforts. So let's get started. Karen, thanks again for joining today. Let's Let's talk about background. How did you get your start in the philanthropic world and eventually develop such an expertise in working with family offices? Ed, first of all, I want to say thank you for inviting me onto this podcast. It's such a delight to speak with you. I've been a big fan of yours for a while and um, and your expertise and that of Denton's in educating um, advisors and high net worth families and next gen has been really impressive to me over the last few years. So I'm really delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Um, just to answer your question, I think that there's something in your DNA that makes you want to engage in, um, in creating a better world. And for me, it was my grandparents. I had grandparents on both sides of my family who worked deeply within their communities, who went out of their way to help others. And my parents who are, um, you know, who are still living um, are doing very much the same thing, taking care sometimes of people who are younger than they are. Um, so I'm, I'm just delighted to be with you. So I started out in media, my, my degrees in broadcast journalism, and I, um, I did a number of things, including helping to start a, um, a local school foundation and running a school foundation for a while. And, um, and then worked with major magazines, and I was invited to join the Oprah Winfrey Show to build out the back, um, the back office of the public charity Oprah's Angel Network, which had started on television. And Oprah's Angel Network gave awards called Use Your Life Awards, um, and, um, and she would give an award every week. It, was, it started out as $50,000 and, and then became $100,000 to a small um, founder, a uh, founder of a small organization in a community that really helped build that community. And the stories were inspirational, but the organizations were really strong. And I learned a lot there too. Um, I moved over to help build and run a multi-generational, multi-family, um, multi-family line, ultra high net worth family um, giving practice, as you mentioned. And now I have a boutique firm guiding families and advisors to use their assets, both financial and, and social and intellectual and help them engage, learn, and generate impact. Now, in terms of today's philanthropic and nonprofit landscape, I mean, we're almost a year into the pandemic. You know, we had a good chance to talk about this, I'd say seven or eight months ago. I don't think we could ever have predicted where we are between now and today. 
give me your perspective of how nonprofits are are thinking about and reacting to the pandemic and certainly on the on the donor front as well. And there's some really interesting, uh, your perspective there would be really interesting. You know, before I jump into what's happening right now, I just want to give you a little bit of the landscape of, of nonprofits. You know, when we think about nonprofits, just the term nonprofit kind of in, inspires us to think about zero profit. And that's really not the case. We could talk about for purpose organizations, right? For profit and for purpose organizations. Nonprofits are corporations that are designed for public benefit or the public trust. And there was never anything suggesting that they didn't generate a profit. Um, the Urban Institute. Um, generated some data in in um, 2019, 154 million nonprofits in the United States in 2016, and that generated 11 million jobs. Um, they it contributed 5.6 percent of the U.S. GDP, and that was close to a 5 percent increase from 10 years earlier. And in addition to that, about a quarter of the adult population in the United States volunteers. Um, with organizations for social for social good or religious organizations every year. So last fall, the Washington Post reported that a third of all nonprofits would close or merge because of the pandemic. And I'd suggest that that's not a bad thing. So a little history. Um, in following 9-11, there was a plethora of nonprofits that that popped up. And then after Hurricane Katrina in 2005, the landscape just exploded. Um, and they were working on a lot of niche issues, but they, they were developed and organized really quickly. Many of them couldn't meet donor intent. So by donor intent, I'm, I'm suggesting that when someone makes a donation, and usually they're more sizable donations, they're not, you know, they're not $100 donations, but when someone gives several thousand dollars, they typically give it for a particular purpose. And the, the organization is responsible for, for if they accept the money for a particular purpose, like for 9-11 relief, it has to be used that way. It can't be used somewhere else. Um, and they were having a hard time delivering services. So the in the current landscape, the strongest nonprofits are the ones that are doing direct service and have been for a long time. Um, so, there's a myth among many not nonprofit agencies that there's a finite amount of capital, um, which enrages competition between the agencies. But there's really a lot of capital, and you, you know this from your work as well, a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines waiting to be unlocked. And instead of competing, if nonprofit organizations build relationships, merge, as the Washington Post had indicated, um, then they're going to be stronger for it. So social change is not relegated to tax-exempt dollars. There's a lot going on in the impact space and, um, and with um, environment, social, and governance investing, ESG investing, that is part of the larger ecosystem that's going to get us back on our feet as a nation. Um, but often foundations, the philanthropic sector, are the catalyst for that. So let me, let me go into the donors sure. because there's another piece of this, and I think that may be the question you were going to ask. That landscape is changing, too, and changing in three ways that are really significant. So donors of color, there's major, major movements of donors um, of color coming together, and the Rose Institute on Diverse Philanthropy at Indiana University is one place that's happening. In Chicago, where I am, Liz Thompson and her husband Don of the Cleveland Avenue Foundation are huge catalysts of engaging donors of color in, um, in thinking together. And it's not really new because Booker T. Washington's work at Tuskegee Institute, when he, when he partnered with Julius Rosenwald and built 5,000 schools 
for rural um, children of color in the South is credited, with, is credited with really changing the landscape of the time. And that was actually in place until Brown versus Board of Ed in 1954. And philanthropist, Madam G.C.J. Walker, who developed hair care products and was is thought of as the first African-American woman, really the first female, not just African-American female, but female millionaire in the, in the United States, developed a line of hair care products. And she employed hundreds of women who then could educate their children. In 2020, the Chronicle of Philanthropy reports that more gifts from top donors went to racial justice and human services in 2020 than ever before. So that's one, one thing. The second one is trust-based philanthropy. And there's a power imbalance in philanthropy um, that is particularly challenging. When you're giving away money, you are never more beautiful, you're never smarter, you're never more intelligent to the people who are looking for that money. But there's something very inauthentic about that. So the ability to create genuine, authentic relationships with people and partner with, with the organizations that are doing the direct service work is what is going to get the donor to the outcome that they're really looking for. And this concept of trust-based philanthropy has six dreams, multi-year support, funders are responsible for doing their homework, not the other way around where the grantee is seeking out the money, the funders go out and find them, figure out who's doing the right, the, the best work in the field. Streamlined paperwork, transparent and responsive approaches, acting on feedback, and then offering non-financial support. And a lot of folks want to do that. Um, and then Mackenzie Scott's extraordinary approach, where she put $4.1 billion into the field, um, distributed among 384 organizations. And her gifts to higher ed were to historically marginalized and underserved people. So that's, those are truly significant changes. There's many other very large donors like McKinsey Scott who are going to step into, um, into a similar situation based on where we are right now. And then lastly, the third thing, which I think is hugely fascinating, is foundations using debt. So Ford, MacArthur, Mellon, Kellogg, and the Doris Duke Foundation got together really based on the, the leadership of the Ford Foundation and Darren Walker. And um, in 2019, Ford distributed 520 million in grants, but that wasn't enough based on the needs of the pandemic. So they, um, so they took out a, a billion dollars in debt and they've issued bonds over 30 and 50, and 50 years in order to finance that debt and they're distributing the billion dollars this year um, and others are following. So fascinating things going on in the field this year. Um, and there's a, a tremendous response, but philanthropy can't do it all. What about after the pandemic? I mean, you talked about some of the things that are that are happening now. What's that, what's the philanthropic landscape going to look like after, perhaps in early 2022? You know, um, you know, Ed, I think that there are some transformational changes happening, and that the verticals aren't going to be quite as clear. Um, I think that there, that while tax incentives in philanthropy are still really important, um, according to a survey, a biennial survey that's done by U.S. Trust and the Lilly School of Family Philanthropy, um, every time they do the survey, fewer and fewer people list tax efficiency as the, as the reason why they're giving. And I think at this point, it's about 17% of the people they survey. Um, so I think that especially with the emerging generation and, and people caring more about 
purpose inside the work that they do, that the fabric of our society is going to change. And I, cer I certainly hope so, that there's a plethora of tools in the field to use and that we're going to see more of that, more, um, more cross-sector um, cross work happening in the field in order to solve big problems and less relegation to the philanthropic sector or the private sector or the public sector. Carrie, you, you touched, briefly touched about uh, touched on in terms of how the U.S. looks at uh, philanthropy and, and some of the numbers that are there and, and, and trends in that space. What are you seeing outside the United States? And then your perspective there would be interesting, since you've, you've worked on a lot of international things and out in nonprofit work outside of the United States. I've spent a lot of time working in Africa, in the Middle East, and in Canada. Um, and in other places, donors are motivated differently. Um, in many European countries, the safety net is funded by the government and not by individuals. So um, especially countries where the, the tax rate is much higher than it is here currently. Um, I know one country and one European country that funds its charitable efforts largely through fines and sales of confiscated goods through organized crime. I mean, they're really interesting ways of generating the, the revenue in order to figure out what, what the social safety net needs. Um, there's a system of patronage, especially in the realms of the arts, like somewhat like we have here, but a little bit different. Um, and then business changing practices to be sustainable and focus on employee retention. So I was at a conference, um, I was at a conf European conference a couple of years ago and had a conversation with a third generation family member who, um, who now ran their mining company. And he was fascinating to talk to. He said, you know, in the States, you really do philanthropy so much better than we do in my country. And I think he was from Switzerland. He said, we don't, we don't really do it here in the same way. And so I started asking him about his business. And he said, you know, yes, I'm, I'm working really hard on creating sustainability and it's costing me some money, but my employee retention is much better than it was. And I think that in the long run, it's going to be fin financially much better for me um, than, it is, than it is right now. And so I'm doing this for the future. And I said, well, that's, that's social change. That's philanthropy, right? Love of humankind. And then he started telling me about his kids. And one, one, one kid was, um, was working in Africa um, on, on a, um, an agricultural prod project. And another kid was teaching um, English as a second language. Um, in an Asian country. And I thought, well, his kids have really gotten this sense of giving back. And that's something that has, you know, it, it crosses boundaries. Um, we do it in different ways. So I think that's, that's really important. And one of the projects that I've been working on for a while is something called PVM Studio. And I've got a colleague out of McGill in Montreal, Anita Nowak, who's a professor of empathy and another colleague in Switzerland. And we're working with families and businesses globally on purpose and how to identify that purpose, how to imbue it, how to use it to, to create stronger businesses and to create stronger bonds and families. Do you think the landscape in the U.S. will change over time to look more like the global landscape of philanthropy? Or do you think it, it will vice versa, that, that uh, philanthropy will go the direction of, of the United States? You know, that's such a good question, Ed. I, I, don't, I don't actually think there'll be a complete alignment. I think when you're talking about 
about purpose, our goals are the same, but our methods will, will continue to be different. Um, and in part, that's a funding question. It's about how our institutions are funded. Um, and it's about the relationship between the federal government in the United States and the philanthropic sector. Um, and in part, you know, that's why, that's why organizations are tax exempt. They're, they're tax exempt in order to, um, to imbue the organization kind of with the stewardship of the public trust so that the organization can then do the social safety network and come up with the things that, the, the innovations and the things that we do as Americans that, that really need to, um, that need to take place that maybe government officials aren't thinking about. Let's start talking about how family offices get into philanthropy. What are some of those common pathways? You know, ad advisors are often dealing with cross-generational, cross-family line businesses. Um, and they need to understand what a family wants to accomplish. That's just, it, it, it's, it's so important for an advisor to understand where a family's goal going, what their goals are. Often they're setting up family councils. They're almost always multiple sources of philanthropic impact, um, philanthropic capital, especially if the family is a multi-generation family. Um, there are questions about the quests and estate planning and, um, and they need creative solutions that are sustainable. So I often interact with advisors who have some issue that's come up like, um, I had one advisor come to me, an estate planner, who said, I have a client who, who has just finished her estate plan, and in it she says, X percentage of her estate is going to women in Africa. And I said, can you tell me more? And they said, no. That was all. It was just women in Africa. So there are, um, there's a lot of work to be done in order for money to be well used and for it to evolve over time so that it can be contextualized to the need that exists at, at the moment. And so I do a lot of advising with advisors around those things um, and how to create a, um, a, a relationship inside a family that's not a familial relationship, but builds on that familial relationship, but professionalizes it. Um, philanthropic advisors um, bust assumptions in families. And so often in a family, it may be, you know, my cousin, pulled my hair at Thanksgiving dinner when I was a kid or te teased me relentlessly and I want nothing to do with that cousin anymore. Um, and I think that cousin is just a, a mean human being. Well, in fact, that cousin may be doing some really wonderful things, but because of the, the way um, the family communicates, it's not clear to everyone how that happens. Another example of that is uh, across generations. Um, a patriarch of a family who's built a business and now has two other generations running their business, may see his grandchildren and think, you know, they're not getting news. They're not following current events. They don't understand civics. And uh, the third generation of the family may say, my grandfather's not on social media. He has no clue what's going on in the world. So being able to bridge the understanding between how we're getting our information and how we're acting on our information in families can be really big. Sometimes it's just little things like creating roles and responsibilities or getting, getting a, um, a second generation family member to call their parents by their first name at the board table. How should the, the family office get involved with, with the family uh, to get to, to kickstart its, its philanthropic efforts or, or maybe some ways that you think that they perhaps should avoid given your experience working with family offices? You know, I often get calls from family offices 
um, because a family has been um, has been giving for a while and there's an opportunity for them to give more. There may be tax reasons why the, fam- the person who runs a family office really wants the family to engage in philanthropy more. Um, there are a lot of reasons why people go into philanthropy period. And there are, there, there is a moment in time. So there's, I think of them in, as inflection points and those inflection points are either a liquidity event or, um, or a life cycle event. There's, so there's some catalyst in the family who's, who's pushing for philanthropy. Um, family offices just see that moment in time and can see that the family's going to be better off working together that they'll have a chance to explore and that there's opportunities to build legacy. Um, family offices also, you know, they're invested in, in keeping their clients and keeping their clients um, satisfied and, um, and creating impact with their, with their clients. And often people see what the potential is. So bringing in a, um, an outside philanthropic consultant to help analyze the situation, figure out what the family needs and help move them in that path is um, is something that advisors do all the time. And that, that's where the opportunity exists. After a family gets started in, uh, with their philanthropic efforts, are there some commonalities that you've seen in your work in terms of those families that do it the most effectively? Better said, are there best practices uh, that you've, you've seen employed uh, by families, whether in the United States or abroad? You know, there's an, every family is different and anyone who works with family offices and, and family um, and ultra high net worth families or high, high net worth families knows that each family has its own imprint um, and wants to do things their way. And so when, when I'm working with a family, I approach it in a very agnostic um, way. I, I, I'm not interested in, in an agenda that I bring to the table. I really want to find out from the family what they, what they care about. One of the most interesting things that I've discovered is that across generations, there's almost always, I, I, I don't think I've ever not seen this, there's a thread of values that runs through the, the family. Even though they might not see it themselves, they care about the same things. And so a lot of the work that I do is helping them understand that they care about the same things. Um, and getting to that place where we're able to have a conversation. One of the examples that I, I use most frequently is that often, um, often the, the, the founding generation of a family or the, the patriarch of a, of a family um, has been giving to a hospital um, for many years. And that hospital is really important to them. It's in the community and the hospital is there for them. If they need the hospital, they go to the galas at the hospital. They know, they know the people who work at the, at the hospital in development. And it's been a really important point for them. And there may, be a, um, there, there may be one area in the hospital in particular. Maybe it's the, the neonatal unit or the cardiac unit. Well, the emerging generation cares about, cares about healthcare, right? They've seen their, their parents and their grandparents go to these galas. They've seen them. They've seen them engage very deeply, but they want to know more. They want to understand what the what research is happening in that particular area. So let's say it's cardiac health, and as they start to investigate and they're looking at the research, they may also find that that um, people in underserved communities aren't represented in the research, or that there's service that's not being provided. So while the donations to the hospital can continue, they're talking to the development people about very different things. And they're trying to contextualize 
the values of the family and the connection to that health that health issue to the work that they're thinking about writ large so to to the larger the larger society and that may mean finding nonprofits that are providing health care in zip codes where there isn't any or where, where there aren't the specialties that are needed and that are being delivered by that particular hospital. In terms of how families look at insourcing or outsourcing capabilities around philanthropy, where, where do you stand on that? How, how, how can families make those decisions? Because I can't imagine those are very easy ones to do. Yeah, you know, um, I find that in, in families that are very serious about philanthropy, whether they're, wherever they are, whatever stage they're in, in developing the philanthropy, there's a collective wisdom and strength and the families really want to work together. So I, I love this question that you've asked and how you phrased it, because usually when I speak, people, advisors will come up to me and say, so, so what's, what's the asset, what, what level of assets under management will you work with? Or what should the AUM be if we're going to set up our own foundation? And, and that's not the first question that, um, that I would ask. So sometimes, um, sometimes decisions are made based on taxes um, about, about vehicles. But if you remember, this is a bunch of years ago, this fellow Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And the second habit is begin with the end in mind. So when people come up to and ask about so should it be should we have staff inside or outside or should we work with a um, a group what do you recommend my first my, my response is what do you want to do you know think about what it is you want to accomplish and advisors can help do that so having a facilitated family conversation can be huge in doing that um begin with the end in mind what do you want to accomplish family legacy is something that a lot of families really want to engage in. How do we leave a legacy? How do we strengthen our family? Sometimes that's done because the family members have a piece of the, you know, they have interest in the business. And it's, it's in the best interest of the family and it's in the best interest of the business for everyone to be, um, for everyone to be on the same page or to, to be close, closer and to understand what's happening. It's an opportunity to talk in a discreet way. Um, but sometimes it's about issue areas, you know, because people care very deeply about um, heart health or some, someone in the family has been lost to a particular disease or in a particular way, um, that's really important. So wealth management organizations provide advice and some of it is off, it's often really good, but sometimes there's an agenda that isn't as much about helping the family as it is about protecting business relationships. Um, and so I would advise families to do the research and to talk to other people who have used, used particular groups and to really understand what's happening in the landscape. In, in terms of the different vehicles, there's so many of them out there. Maybe you can give us a little bit of an overview of some of the most common ones, whether it's private foundations, supporting organizations, DAFs, remainder trusts, charitable lead trusts, and the other. Maybe a, a brief overview of some of those most common vehicles could be very helpful. Typically, especially if it's a multi-generation family, there are multiple vehicles. And often people don't even know 
how their family's been giving. So starting to roll that up at the very beginning and understand, you know, that there's a, um, a trust over here and an endowment was made at a university and there's a donor advised fund or maybe maybe two and there's a private foundation and rolling all of that up can be can be really helpful. One thing that's important to note is that donations made to philanthropic vehicles are tax exempt in that in the year that they're made and they're not the exemption to from the donation um, from the vehicle to an organization has the tax the tax exempt status has already been done so it doesn't there's no mandate that money's paid out um, but there are there are mandates based on the type of vehicle you're using so for example a private foundation the, um, has the fiduciary responsibility um, of, of managing the foundation. And so a private foundation needs to have a board of directors. Um, I actually posit that having uh, an advisory board or whether it's fiduciary or not in philanthropic giving can be beneficial for families. So a has a fiduciary responsibility. A donor advised fund does not. The fiduciary is the organization that's managing the fund. And those might be community foundations or, um, or financial institutions. Um, they could be um, religious organizations or hospitals or, or universities all have donor advised funds. And since the fiduciary responsibility is with the organization, they may decide that some of the distributions that the donor actually wants to make are not within their parameters. So researching those is, is really important also. Um, and then the, the trusts are wonderful ways to distribute money to your family and to charity. So whether it's a charitable remainder trust or a lead trust, um, the tax exempt status varies depending on what kind of trust you're looking at. There's a sprinkler opportunity um, with some trusts and often the, um, either the balance or, um, or an annuity payment goes to the charity of your choice. And that can be done with insurance policies also. Um, so there are a lot of opportunities, but the donor advised funds and the private foundations are the ones that typically distribute um, in, the, in the same, um, they typically distribute annually and the trusts are not necessarily so. Um, one thing that's important to note is this sense of endowments versus spend down foundations. And this is more uniquely an American thing. Um, there's been a, a lot of conversation about the benefit of creating an endowed foundation. Um, and I actually have some clients who um, who haven't endowed their foundation because they have active businesses and would prefer to keep the money invested on their end and just fund um, the organizations, you know, fund the distributions um, from, the, from the corporation. So there's a lots, lots of different ways to do this. But endowed foundations or foundations in perpetuity are also are, are typically designed um, for legacy purposes so that your children and your grandchildren and their children will have access to philanthropic dollars um, and understand your intent as the founder or the family's intent and the family legacy. And, um, and by allowing them to make decisions over time and giving them some, some authority and engaging them deeply in the learning that goes on, you set that endowed foundation up for success over a long period of time. As families are, are coming together and building out their plans, or maybe they got started many years ago, uh, the, there's some issues around finding the common values uh, that you, you mentioned, right? Rallying around uh, uh, shared values within the family. How do you work with that? And then also you know, put it into the context of the you know, next generation, cross-generational work that you do with 
as people become adults, they have different values that they associate with them. There might be a core value to the family itself, but they, they start to become on their own and they start to think um, and, and different causes become important to them. How do you manage that? So there's a couple of questions that are embedded in there, but you know, I, I think we, we are, um, we live in dynamic times. So the world doesn't stand still and things don't stay the same. So values need to be contextualized over time. Um, and you know, we see, um, we see issues related to donor intent being litigated um, because an organization hasn't necessarily been able to hold on to that donor intent over time. And there's some really fascinating cases in the field where that's happened. Um, and then we also see families that made their money in fossil fuels and the Rockefellers are one through Standard Oil, now Exxon. Um, and the, you know, the, the philanthropic arms, multiple arms of the Rockefeller Foundation are working hard to divest from fossil fuels. So there's a, a tension sometimes within families where, where the, the wealth has been made in one way. And over time, because of the way the world is contextualizing information and because of what we're learning, um, future generations want to make it better. You know, and, and realize that their wealth has come from whatever it was that is, is causing problems now. So it's really fascinating to see that. But I think contextualizing values across time and creating, for a founder, creating a sense of nimbleness within a very clear framework is, um, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's something that, that philanthropic advising can help, um, can help accomplish. And it's really important. One of the elements that often comes up is measuring impact. How to accurately, consistently measure impact of, of philanthropic efforts that are made. Have you seen best practices in this area and how to find some, some of that consistency across different activities that a family is doing? Yeah, it's such a good question, Ed. Um, I, I think that, that relationships are critical. So money is inanimate. You know, um, and often, and, and I, some people bristle when I say this, but often it's not about money, right? It's it's about relationships. It's about um, it's about knowledge building. Um, money doesn't speak for itself. It can actually do harm if it's used improperly. And I, I've had the um, I've had the opportunity to see fields of solar panels that aren't hooked up to anything in the developing world, and um, and clinics that are not outfitted with anything. There's not even anybody doing, um, doing any, providing any kind of care from these clinics. They're just empty buildings. And those things, those things harm the resilience of a community, even a very poor community. So money can do damage. And that's, I think that's something that's really important to consider. Um, nobody would start a business without doing a market survey. So understanding understanding what's happening in the landscape before you move into thinking about impact and really making informed decisions, um, finding out as much as you can from the people who are doing the work on the field and creating partnerships using transparency um, is critical. But building relationships, examining the landscape, talks to stakeholders, reading reports, being proximate. Um, there's this fellow, Brian Stevenson, who, um, who wrote a book called Just Mercy, 
And Brian Stevenson talks about the importance of being proximate. So not just making decisions from the comfort of your living room, but actually going into communities or inviting people in to talk to you so that you get a perspective and build your build the opportunity to learn. And that is so magical in the context of a family because everyone sees things very differently. I was on a call not too long ago with a family that I'm working with and there was um, there's an organization that's working with children who have mental health problems and who are living on the street. And this very well-dressed man came to the came to the conversation, it was a Zoom conversation. And in, in the conversation, we talked for a long time and there was just an assumption that, you know, he had come out of the business world to do this. And about halfway through the patriarch of the family said, so tell me about your background. And he said, my, my parents left very early on and I grew up underneath, uh, um, underneath a, a railroad train. Um, and I, I lived there for a couple of years before I was helped by some people. And then he started to talk about how his life had turned around. And this was a fellow who lived this every single day. And as he was telling his story, he started to cry. Um, and in part, I think because people don't ask, right? It's something that gets locked up and not revisited. But the, often the people who are doing this work have gone through incredible transformations of, of their own. And just hearing those stories and being part of that transformational shift for other people can be huge for families and gives them conversational material, gives them things to talk about and act on and helps you know, spur conversations about how can we really help? What, is, what does this mean? Um, so be holistic is another one. So you can't make a, a dent in poverty by focusing on education alone. You have to look at the whole landscape. There are heat maps, they're, they're done here in Chicago um, and I think probably in every city. And here in Chicago, there's a 30 year mortality difference between zip codes, right? And there are zip codes where 50% of the people living in that zip code have either been incarcerated or have a, a close family member who've been incarcerated. And that's data that just jumps off the page at you to say, look, there's a problem here and we need to do something about it. There are social determinants of, of poverty, food security, housing security, quality of the environment, air, water. Is there lead paint in the, in the community? Access to broadband, quality of education, the number of adults in a child's life. So researching this and really understanding um, all of the all of the impacts that are needed, all of the, the um, interventions that are needed in order to get to the point where you're actually helping a community change is, um, it's so important to understand. You can't just go in and say, okay, we wanna, we wanna solve the education problem and get kids to and through college by funding um, early pre-K, right? It, it takes a lot. Let's go back to your solar panel connected to nowhere example. How do you look at it from the other side of making sure that your allocations to donors and philanthropic efforts are, are to legitimate organizations. I mean, these, these are, these are opportunities that people look at that pull at heartstrings. How do they, how do you ensure uh, that there's some proper risk management in some of the due diligence? I think you, you touched on a little bit of it, but that, that risk side is, I think something that we don't talk enough about. It's head and heart. Um, you can be moved to do something, but you've you've got to have the data. You need to understand who's been successful at this. You need to take a look at where the um, where the failures have been. And over the last decade, 
funders are talking more and more about their failures. And I think that's a really positive thing because without that, it's, it's hard to assess what's really happening. Um, asking questions, being transparent, um, kind of opening up and not being competitive with other nonprofits, but sharing, sharing data with other non between nonprofits, but also between donors, what's worked for you and what hasn't. Um, bringing people in to have conversations and then meeting the people who are affected directly is really important. Um, there was a case in Haiti after, um, after the earthquake there where a group of people from the, from the states decided that they had seen so many pictures of orphaned Haitian children following the earthquake and, and then the sub subsequent hurricanes. They went to Haiti and picked up some children, took them into the Dominican Republic to bring back to the states so that they could be adopted by people. And very slowly, the aunts and the uncles and the remaining parents of those children started looking for them. And, um, and they'd been taken away. And so there, there hadn't been the kind of diligence that was necessary in order to manage an operation like that. It was done with heartstrings, but it, was not, it wasn't thoroughly thought through. And, um, and I think that there was some liability on the people um, who thought they were doing really good things, um, but we're, we're super challenged. What about the next generation? Yeah. Often you'll, you'll hear conversations around how getting the next gen involved in philanthropy can be helpful to, to keep for family harmony and all these other areas, but it's not that simple. How should family look at this and the situation and, and are there good ways that the family office entities can support, uh, support these kinds of efforts? You know, for a long time, we talked about succession. And, um, and one of the problems with succession is that certainly the boomers, but even the generation before the boomers are living longer and they didn't want to be succeeded. They're fascinated. I mean, after spending years building and running a business and then maybe having a liquidity event or maybe just stepping away from the business, philanthropy is is an engaged way to stay current, um, alive, have a purpose in your life. So it's no longer just about success, succession, it's about integration. It's about understanding how generations can work together and getting people around a table to have moderated conversations that allow everyone's voice to be heard. As I mentioned at the, at the top of this conversation, people, come to the table with very different governance models. I know one family, they actually don't have a next generation, but they invited um, other people to sit on their board and they wanted control. So the, um, both the husband and wife have their own businesses and the husband um, decided that everyone was going, everyone who joined the board was gonna have one vote, but his wife was gonna have 5,000 votes and he was gonna have 10,000 votes. So the distribution of power, whether it's real or perceived, is critical. And the, and the clear understanding of that power at the outset is critical in developing a, a productive environment to make decisions. And if everyone actually does have a vote, and if there are term limits, and if there's a, a framework, if there are job descriptions for family members, and if there's a meeting agreement so that everyone understands what happens when they come to the table, then generations do extremely well. And often assumptions get busted, which is a hugely powerful thing. Ed, oh. I, have I have one more story. Yeah, on, please. On, on impact. 
So um, just going back to the, to the last one, I don't know if you're interested in, in including it or not, but I'll, I'll share it with you. So we talked about, we, we talked about impact and a, often, often people invest in research and see impact coming from research, but research ha- tends to have a very long time horizon. So it's why it's important to engage the next generation because the time horizon is, is so long. Um, it's, you know, people look at randomized control trials. They look at direct service. There's an old case that I find so fascinating. And there was a fellow who's an, an engineer and an, and an inventor. He actually um, worked when he was very young with Thomas Edison. And he, um, he and his wife in the 1950s lived on the East Coast. And they traveled up and down the, the Merritt Parkway um, from, from um, Connecticut to New York. And there were constant car accidents on the Merritt Parkway. The Merritt Parkway, Parkway is this very windy road. So whenever it would be rainy or snowy or dark, there were just numerous accidents. And the fellow's name was John Doerr. And his wife was really concerned about this. So instead of focusing on the, um, on the work that he had done as an engineer through his philanthropy, which was his original intention, he started to have conversations about road safety and taking a look at at road safety. Um, And he came up with this theory of the white line. And at that time, there were white lines in the middle of the road, but there were no white lines on the shoulder. So he started conversations with the with the government about painting white lines, and it took him quite a while. The government actually, the the, um, state government actually came back and said it was going to be $150 to paint a white line on one mile of road shoulder. And that was a lot. That was a a big expenditure at the time. And they thought it was ridiculous. So he started to track accidents. And on the Merritt Parkway in New York, there had been 102 accidents um, in one year. And after the white stripe was was painted on the side of, um, of a particularly challenging part of the road, the number of accidents was reduced by 55%. Um, and it still took a while. There was a lot of pushback by, gover- by government, but John Doerr and his wife put a fair amount of money into, into creating a beta test for the white line on roads, which eventually gained universal acceptance and you can now find all over the world. So philanthropy as a, as a catalytic tool can be life-changing. It can be life-saving um, for millions of people. Well, I uh, I do have one last question for you, Karen, and that's, Lessons learned. What's the one thing uh, that you know today that you wish you had known when you got in, started getting involved in philanthropy? Do you know, Ed, the, the, the amount of purpose that, um, that thinking through social change issues provides is enormous. Um, it's just, it, it's absolutely life-changing. It's life-affirming. Um, I, I don't see things as binary the way I, I may have when I was younger. I see things as very multidimensional um, and lots and lots of, of inputs. I'm, I'm just constantly awed by some of the ethical issues that, um, that you encounter. So what does it mean to be generous and what does it mean to be kind and what does it mean to be impactful? Um, Oprah said, you cannot continue to succeed in the world or have a fulfilling life in the world unless you choose to use your life in the service somehow to others and give back what you've been given. She said, that's how to keep it, that's how you get it, and that's how you grow it. Well, thank you, Karen. And thanks to all of you for listening in today. 
If you'd like to get in touch with Karen or have any uh, questions, do send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you're so inclined, do subscribe to our channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way that you can show your support. To sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space, check out our website. That's dentons.com forward slash family office. That's it. Bye, everyone. Thank you.